1: Good evening, and blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of State. This show is produced by a plain historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience by honoring all the people past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. Thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, this is Leslie You listen to the Gist of Freedom. Tonight we have a young scholar on to talk to us about Queen Nanny and other maroon uh, warriors. Hoshaya, are you on the line?
0: Yes, I am, Ms. Jess. Thank you for having okay, me. you
1: could, Oh, anytime. You could call me Leslie. Um, okay. Could you pronounce your name, all of them, to the audience and, and give us <laughs> a, a little background information?
0: Certainly, certainly. Uh, my name is Hoshaya Khalil, but I'm also known as Abba Izadu Saba, which is a tribal Maroon name. And uh, generally people call me Abba, but either, any of those names are fine for me. Okay, before we
1: delve Mm -hmm. into Queen Mandy and the world premiere at the United Nations, give us a little background information about the meaning of all your names. Very interesting.
0: Okay, Uh, well, uh, Hoshia is actually uh, a biblical name, and it comes from one of the princes at the wall in the uh, in the book of Nehemiah or Nehemiah within the Bible, and it means uh, Yah saves or uh, God saves in English. And uh, Khalil, which is El Khalil, refers in Arabic to the friend of God um, in relation to Ibrahim or what we say in English, Abraham. Uh, mm-hmm. Abba... Abba is uh, father, it means father within Hebrew, and uh, I tend to go towards the uh, the ancient Egyptian um, uh, meanings, which uh, you know the Ab is the heart and Ba is the soul, so you know it's heart and soul. <laughs> okay. Saba. Okay, so yeah, Saba is the, is the tribal name of uh, my family, and it's the name that the clan uh, is under as an umbrella. And uh, it means rock and foundation.
1: Okay. And your parents named you Hoshaya. Indeed. Okay. And what is your parents' background? I'm just curious.
0: Right. So our family is uh, a plethora of things, uh, mainly from the Caribbean, uh, Cuba, Jamaica, uh, Guyana, Barbados, and also England are the main um, places where my family is from. But, of course, as every human being in the, in the earth or in the planet, we all stem from the motherland, Africa.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Did your mom tell you why she named you Hushaya? What inspired her to come?
0: Or your father? Or... Oh, well, um, you know, as with any uh family, Within the, uh, the African diaspora We historically have A connection To our creator Through our religious experience Right, so a lot of our names uh If they don't come from A colonial influence They most certainly will come from A Judeo-Christian Influence and um, certainly hoshi is a part of the uh, What we call the Torah, the Old Testament And so if you want the blessings of, um, that religious, um, belief, you'd want to name your children after, you know, those names and have that, uh, blessing of uh, God within, um, your life. And so my mother being a spiritual person and a religious person, my family in general are spiritual people. Uh, they take on the names that are given within the, uh, the old Testament scripture. Okay.
1: Now, you told me um, earlier that you wanted to change your name to
0: Abba. How do you think your parents feel about that? uh, (laughs) Well, I wouldn't say uh, change my name to Abba. I wanted to take on the family clan name Saba and put that as my last name instead of El Khalil, Uh, simply because Abba has always been the name that I had from since I was a child. My grandmother called me that. Uh, from since I was a baby, and because of her, the whole family on both both sides of my family has called me Abba. So as far as I'm concerned, that's the most realist and most official name that I have because, you know, mm-hmm. she named me. And, uh, you know, as far as name legit, legitimacy is concerned, it's not really about what's on your birth certificate, but rather what you embrace as genuine, what you say, this is what identifies me. And so Mm Abba is one of the most genuine names that I have. Saba, on the other hand, is that connection to the tribal maroon matriarch that uh, gives me uh, the connection to my Pan-African ideology, my African diasporic roots, and also my connection to uh, my maroon heritage. And as you know, a lot of us, we never really got to connect to anything Uh, that still retains that Africanness or that indigenous quality within our names because our names were substituted with a lot of the colonial uh, names that were given to us during the time of um, slavery. Okay.
1: Now, how did you uh, get involved with the Pan-African movement? Um, It sounds like your family, they weren't as involved as you are.
0: So let's start right. In. So, okay. I think thank you for that question. Um, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind when you say that, you know, is we aren't monolithic people. You know, we have mm-hmm. a wide variety of beliefs, and sometimes we we have those beliefs inhabiting our thoughts and our motives and our mind and our mindset all at once, all jumbled together, even if they're not in harmony with one another. So you can be you can have family members that are fully pro black, Pan Africanist, but at the same time they can be Christian. Right?
1: Good. You can have
0: Exactly fam- Right. So so we 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 walk with a lot of ideas within our minds. And it's just that some of these ideas they occupy parts of our consciousness to fulfill certain voids that we need to go along with in our daily lives. So mm-hmm. when when I consider my family, we were a uh, A rich, diverse body of different philosophies you know we have rastafarians muslims christians uh Hebrew Israelites uh atheists, scientists, a whole lot of different <laughs> uh people of different orientations as according to the circumstances and choices. That they've made within their lives Uh, What affected me Was uh, growing up With going back and forth from the Caribbean Towards New York City I had uh, the influence Of Rastafarianism And Islam And tribal African religion In the Caribbean As well as in New York City That uh, shaped my political uh, uh, And philosophical And spiritual points of views And perspectives and it left a mm-hmm. real impact on me from since I was a teenager.
1: What was the first book that you picked up that, uh, you know, that you really can discuss right now and remember and say it had the most
0: influence on you? Oh, wow. <laughs> wow, that's a question. <laughs> if not, what, say...
1: what person, the person, a mentor?
0: Ah, okay. Uh, let's see. uh I would have to say one of the first books that left a big impact on me was uh, Dr. Ben, uh, Dr. Yosef Ben Yohanan, or Jokhanen, Um uh-huh. Africa, Mother of Western Civilization. Uh, his, his work on a scholarly level had uh, really impacted me uh, as a uh, teen, and uh, he was one of the first scholarly works. That uh really, really are uh, challenge my thinking and challenge my thought process to want to know more about why are we in this situation? Why am I occupying this body? Who am I? What should I look for in terms of a vocation in life? What should I be trying to find to help myself, help my family, and help the people around me because the situation looks dire?
1: <laughs> mhm, wow. I heard his I heard his name come up in many conversations on this radio show I only know of him through people like yourself I haven't read anything about him But mm-hmm. I hope our listeners are taking notes Because as you can tell by now This young man is bubbling over with information And I have my pen and pad ready So um, let's talk about the Maroons And Queen Nanny
0: Ah, wonderful. Uh, You know, before I even say anything about the highly esteemed Queen Nani, um, I want to say that there are two ways that you can view her. Mm -hmm. You can view her, of course, from historicity, but you can also view her from legend. Uh, What I mean to say is that we can study her and trace her history through the, the evidences left behind as according to what we read within the past, but also look at how she fits within our symbolism. She fits within our uh, our stories of, uh, of of fulfillment, of overcoming obstacles. And mm-hmm. I would think that both are important, and one cannot exist without the other. So, you know, the, the 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 legend of Queen Nani is that she came to the isle, island of her own volition. She was not in chains. She heard that her people who over here in the Caribbean were in chains and they they were held captive. And so her and her cohort and her brothers came to free her people within the Caribbean, particularly in Jamaica. And that is the legend of her um, Queen
1: Nani. Mm-hmm. And how did you learn about it? Did you learn about it through your family, the
0: legend? Oh, yes, definitely. You know, uh, a part of my family is Jamaican, so <laughs> the main thing that you I would hear in the house is, of course, Queen Nani, uh, of course, Marcus Mosiah Garvey, you know, of course, uh uh, uh, Kajo and Johnny and, uh, Baku and cool a lot of the Maroons. And um, you know, Maroons are celebrated um in the sense that um when it relates to Jamaican nationality, particularly when Jamaican nationalism uh was at its peak within the sixties, uh, uh to represent this symbolic uh first self determination of a Jamaican people on that island. That's what the Maroons embodied uh for the nationalists at that time. So they use that as a national appeal. And because of that, that trickled down within the educational systems and also within the homes uh, um, in Jamaica at the time. And I, as a young man, I'm hearing all these things growing up. And not only that, uh, you know, my great grandmother, she always told us that we were (laughs) (laughs) maroons. My great grandmother, she would be on the uh, the porch and she would be in her old rocking chair. And uh, my earliest memory of her was uh, when she was 89 years old. And I would be at her feet at five and six, and she would tell me about being in St. Elizabeth and how, you know, we are marooned. And she'd pass this information down to uh, my grandmother, and my aunt, who was very zealous about genealogy, also impacted me as well. And that helped mold who I am today.
1: Okay. Now, I know that she's revered to the extent in Jamaica that she's on a $500 bill. We're working on... Putting Harriet on a ten dollar bill. Tell us about this five hundred dollar bill.
0: Well, uh, you know, it, it's so much. Uh, you know, when you invoke Jamaican money, it, it's so much politics involved in um, in that discussion. Um, first of all, I would like to say it's great to have our people on currency. I think that's a wonderful thing. It's symbolic. It says that this paper has value. Therefore, by extension, the people on the paper have value. However, we know that money is more than just pictures. You know that money is more than just art, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Right now, uh, Jamaica, presently, uh, their their dollar is not doing that well, and that's because of a lot of history that goes way back towards when um, the U.S. was putting sanctions upon Cuba. And Jamaica wanted to make a deal with Cuba in order to uh build resources within the country and uh you know foreign policy had uh really really damaged the Jamaican economy uh increased violence within the uh the communities and also because of this uh, you know the i m f came in and reduced the value of the dollar and While it's great to have Queen Nani or an image of Queen Nani on the dollar you know you 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 don't have the sense of power with that dollar if the dollar does not have that value. Now, Mm -hmm. with that being said, Harriet Tubman on uh, a U.S. dollar is, uh, you know, way overdue. Not only Harriet Tubman, but Mm -hmm. a significant amount of um, great uh, black people within uh, United States history should be on uh, that dollar bill. Uh, should be on many things within this country in terms of identity. As we know, that that Statue of Liberty is really supposed to be a a black woman. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we look at money and we look at the old Twin Towers that got destroyed as symbols of power, symbols of authority. Mm -hmm. And so I think that black people's imagery should be associated or aligned with symbols of authority, but not as puppets. Not as puppets. It should be something that reflects self determination. It should uh, reflect hard work and the the struggle of Black people. And that when people see it, that it it forces a dignity and a pride, and 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 it also teaches a lesson that hey, we've overcome. You can overcome as well.
1: Okay. Did you see the United Nations memorial to slavery? Oh yeah. Monument. Yeah. Okay, so now, when you mentioned the word dignity, I thought about that monument. What Mm -hmm. comes to mind when you think of that monument at United Nations?
0: Can you describe (sighs) it to the audience? Nothing nothing really, nothing different um, from anything else. Uh, You know, when we we talk about things like this... uh, it, it, it makes me think about the fact that we do have monuments, but there is there is little societal change. I mean, what is the difference from that monument versus Martin Luther King on the Mall, right, in terms of um, the social impact that um, it fosters within um, our economic environment, within our political environment, within our educational environment? I mean, what... What is that doing? If if we're still suffering within our communities and we are lacking resources, how much of an impact are those monuments doing in general? And, And I'm not trying to specify this particular one that we're talking about. I'm talking about just monuments in general that harken to a particular time. They have their place. They have their uses, but it is not, in my view, as impacting enough if it's not catering to what's happening now with living people with us right now with our situation with law enforcement mm-hmm. with people and you know it it, it it'll, it'll make me go on this a long political tangent and I don't want to do that I know that's not the focus of this show <laughs> Okay
1: I'm listening I'm listening
0: I'm enjoying this go ahead finish Okay right so you know um I would in other words what I'm saying is that I would rather some uh Change within our community than than monuments. I I would rather the monuments of change, the monuments of change will be more ideology than statues or drawings Mm -hmm. or sculptures. I would rather it be philosophical change, economic change. Those are the monuments and statues and symbols that I would want to praise. You know, I Mm -hmm. I would want to look forward to. You know, Um, I want more schools. That are for the people within the community, you know I want more mm-hmm. um uh uh, uh 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 places of uh family development and cultural mm-hmm. development and economic opportunity within the communities, and you know mm-hmm. yeah, it's nice to have statues and art, but if it's not helping our community how you know how effective how effective are those things
1: Now, would you include this film Queen Annie as being part of this? Statue and as far of art that you think
0: Oh, if if it's ineffective, not, yes. you know, right. Mm-hmm. That's an excellent question. If it's ineffective, then yes, if it's ineffective. Uh, but I think that the, when you look at the the story of Queen Nani, uh, particularly mm-hmm. this one that's coming up, you have people within that movie that are trying to impact. their living, like they're living people within that that uh, that that piece of art right because that's what it is a Mm -hmm. piece of art a piece of entertainment that tries to convey a piece of historicity so Mm -hmm. within there you do have actual maroons who are living who are trying to impact their society who are trying to be active with other african diasporic peoples and that's what i'm talking about so if the statue could interact on that level then so be it (laughs) okay you know you want some high-tech
1: <laughs> statue okay um uh, but we have to delve into this area because it's important and you know i i try to interview people from all different genres and um so let's talk about the egyptian statue the sphinx okay how they try to destroy it and they try to blow off its nose and even let's mm-hmm. talk about small monuments in in uh little historical markings like the one in Ohio, the just settlement, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. They, they steal it every other year, and the families have to come together and raise more money to replace right. it. So right. if these monuments are not important to us, and, and another thing is we could talk about the schools, the names of the schools. It seems as though mm-hmm. they choose the schools that are named after African-Americans that they close down first or converted to... Right charter schools and rename them after a white person, street Mm -hmm. signs, street names, highways. If we say, well, they're just stagnant and they're ineffective, why is it that our enemies value them to the extent that they're they're purchasing quilts that was commissioned by Oprah Winfrey? and She bought it for uh, Maya Angelou. And yet... The white people are buying up all of our art, and we don't know what's happening to it
0: in our history. That's because uh, you can say that's adding insult to injury. I would characterize mm-hmm. it as adding insult to injury, because not only mm-hmm. do you disenfranchise people economically, but you also take the imagery. Because what should what what makes imagery great and powerful? is the the the, uh, the the accomplishments of the individuals that make it right so in other words mm-hmm. those pyramids that you see in ancient egypt could not have mm-hmm. been there without the hard work of the time of khufu right or the time of um ramesses or the time of uh, of of all these ancient Nisuts or pharaohs you would not have mm-hmm. that with the people that created that stuff, right, and their economy and the power of their economy. But once, you know, the Ptolemies came in, they co-opted the same thing that's happening in the United States. They co-opted all the statues and changed it around. But they still look artistically appealing, but it was changed Mm -hmm. around to be used for what? Greek immigration, right? Greek citizens coming in and becoming a part of Egypt, Right? But the mm-hmm. the statues were still nice. It's just that they put it in a more Hellenistic point of view. Right. Mm-hmm. And they changed it around for them. So to answer your question about why um uh European descended people would buy up all the things that we uh we make in here, it it's it's a co opting. It's a it's a it's a revisionist type of um history that goes on. Like for example with you know, Martin Luther King, sometimes it doesn't even have to be about how you draw Martin Luther King or how you sculpt Martin Luther King, but just 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 co-opt his words, right, and turn mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. he says into into something small, like "I have a dream." And if you make Martin Luther King into just "I have a dream" and that's it, and you just omit everything else from him, then you make him nice and innocuous, and he's nice and user friendly for mm-hmm. people who are anti-us or anti-black people. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and this is the thing that's been happening. So they use our intellectual ability, they, uh, 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 forces, capitalist forces, uh, soak our, uh, our, our economic and intellectual ability and also take our artistic ability to change it around to benefit them. And okay. that by, but is, and don't, Okay, whose no, okay.
1: responsibility is it to delve into the, uh, Monster King? Statue, and to look to Who's learn more than just then to learn more than just "I have a dream."
0: Okay, so so now you're talking about how do we educate ourselves and what right. is the proper way of educating ourselves? Right. I've always been very pro family first. The mother, mm-hmm. the father is the first educator. I believe that every mother and father, ideally should have the ability to educate their children to a level where that they can give basic principles in order for them to survive within the world. And if they don't have that ability, this is the information age. You can find so many mediums where which you can empower yourself and build yourself as a mother and build yourself as a father. And you can, you know, program your children To face a world that's full of competition, because when you come into this world, you're facing competitors, and you become a competitor. And in this world, the the it's all things are not even. Race makes this world highly imbalanced, but it's still a competition nonetheless, a deadly competition. So when you Mm -hmm. ask me who is responsible to teach Martin Luther King, of course it's the black family responsible. Yeah, the proper Mm -hmm. way. That's right. The the right way, not the revisionist way but the way right. that, 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 that you know, that Martin Luther King in his life lived and expressed his ideology. Right. And that takes critical thinking.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we had a caller, and I apologize if you're on the line. Uh, we will get to you. Please do not hang up. Um, now let's try to go back to Queen Nanny and the Maroons. I posted a picture of another Warrior, well,
0: yeah. another queen. Did you yeah. notice who she is on your Facebook yes, yes, page? Yes. Oh yeah she's wonderful. Carla from um, that's my that's my country too, Cuba. <laughs> you know, she is um, mm-hmm. she's powerful. You know, she she was um at uh, spearheading. I mean, she's no different from all the other great. She's a queen in her own right. Mm-hmm. The strong Black African diasporic women. Who are at the forefront in many of the resistance uh, Mm -hmm. uh, events that took place in in different countries and she was wonderful she definitely was tell us what is
1: it how do we define and I asked you this off air what is the difference Mm -hmm. between the Gullah Geechee and the Maroons tell us uh, you know give us a scholarly definition of a Maroon and a Gullah Mm -hmm. Geechee
0: okay well Maroons. Maroons are where uh, global tribal communities of uh, different origins historically intersect, um, as it relates to the conflict and power relationships that took place with European nations during colonial imperialism and expansion. So, when you have Indigenous Americans uh firstly being uh uh kidnapped and uh, enslaved by Europeans, some resisted then you have the uh after that uh Africans were also enslaved and some escaped and some of them uh uh, uh joined forces or confederated with indigenous Americans and they became their own nations within certain areas of the of uh, the country. And fought against um Europeans, some of them worked with Europeans, some of them fought fought amongst themselves right uh, mm-hmm. maroons in general, however, always um uh had the uh the colonists as an enemy because you know it, the colonists' interest is to what to have them enslaved and to use them as labor to um increase profit now the Gullah Geechee... Part of the Gullah Geechee uh, is maroon in that the black cel- Seminole is what comes from the Gullah Geechee. Uh, there are remnant of uh, Gullah that uh, confederated with Seminoles uh, down in Florida, and there was a big history of um, uh, several wars that took place. And uh, due to uh, uh, heavy losses and um, sometimes victories, but heavy losses, um, they had a little diaspora where one remnant on the um, John horse or Juan Caballo went down into Mexico and some of them went down into the Bahamas in the Caribbean. And so you have black Mm -hmm. Seminoles um, in different areas, but Seminole, and maroon actually come from the same etymological root. So maroon and seminole are the same word, it's just that they come from two different um, language strains, right? Mm-hmm. So Native Americans were pr- pronouncing uh, semachon. They come from the word semachon, or semachones, And semachones comes from the Arawak language word semarabo but mainstream um colonist uh doctrine said that it came from uh the the root word cima which is top or summit uh from spain but it is my position that that's wrong and that's just uh, uh what you call um imperial pseudo scientific <laughs> knowledge <laughs> okay
1: all right well we're quickly approaching um Christopher Columbus day uh, how does that fit into this story of the maroons, the Seminoles, the uh Gullah Geechee? you know how does Christopher Columbus fit into our history from an african American perspective from a maroon perspective
0: right so he fits in in so many different ways uh his first of all his symbol his symbol needs to be revised and taught critically to all people who have to study him. To every school, every child needs to be taught Christopher Columbus exactly what he is, not a made-up virgin or a a watered-down virgin or politically correct virgin, but the actual Christopher Columbus, right, or Cristoforo Colon. He needs to be taught the way that it is, as according to the historical evidences. And um, in actuality, you know, this is cliche, but he didn't, you know, the first thing that we know is that he didn't come here and discover anything. People were here already. That's a basic (laughs) thing that everybody should know, that people were here already. People were traveling here already. And he came here. The best thing that you could give to him is that he capitalized economically on behalf of those who financed him within Spain and Italy, you know that's the be- that's the most that you can give to uh, Christopher Columbus uh, in terms of mm-hmm. um him coming in, and and, and you know he come him coming in is also a mistake. He 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 made a mistake. This is why it's called the West Indies, right? Because West mm-hmm. Indies is a misnomer. You know we're not West Indians. He thought this was Indies, and that's why we call it West Indians, and <laughs> the people over here called Indians, but they're not Indians. Right? Indians are people from the area of the um the the Nile Indus Valley, the ancient Nile Indus Valley on the eastern half of the world. So there's a lot of different uh misnomers, um, uh misinterpretations and just downright fallacies uh concerning mm-hmm. Christopher Columbus. And you asked me how is that in relation to a Maroon's point of view? Well, mm-hmm. From a Maroon's perspective, uh, there's a work that deals with uh, who was on his ship uh, in the time when he was coming. Uh, I think Dr. Ivan Van Surnima, uh dealt mm-hmm. with this. And uh, there was a, a scholar, I apologize, I can't remember her, her name right now, but there's a Jamaican scholar that also deals with this because they were talking about how the presence of Moors were here. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the earlier times, and actually Moors um, uh, uh, were one of the earlier groups to form Maroon communities along with uh, the indigenous Caribbean uh, natives during um, mm-hmm. before the British came in and impacted Jamaica.
1: Mm-hmm. So when we talk about the Moors, uh, you know, let's delve into what is a Moor? And let's talk about Morocco and the okay. Moors and what's going on with Africans uh migrating
0: to Italy and you know. Right. So uh so Moorish history. So so mm-hmm. Moorish history to to make it as sum it up in a nutshell is, you know, a king had a problem with another king in the Iberian Peninsula. And he sent somebody down into North Africa, and then the general Jibral Tariq went up there, saw things, and they said the land is right for the taking, and boom, that's how the Moors go inside there, and then the Moors are in there for uh, over six or seven hundred years. Now, what Mm -hmm. are Moors? Moors are basically a, a collective group of African. Arab and Berber tribe people all under the one identity, because from the European point of view, that's what they called everyone who was non-European, who was under the Islamic banner that came into um, uh, uh, European um, territory. So Mm -hmm. Moors were Africans, Arabs, and Berbers of North Africa. And it's not only encompassing Morocco, but Mali, and a host of other North African and um, West African countries.
1: Were they uh,
0: mercenaries? Uh, Some, some, Mm -hmm. but also scientists, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, astronomers, mathematicians, uh, philosophers, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, botanists, uh, all walks of life, all types of education. In fact, during what they call the dark age was a boom in scientific exploration. Uh, mm-hmm. Educational advancement was taking place because of Moors within Spain at the time um, of what Europeans call dark ages being because the Catholicism had uh, sent out an edict that, you know, people weren't allowed to be literate or to read the Bible and they were only allowed to look at the stations of the cross while coming inside the church And the only people mm-hmm. that were allowed to be literate Was the clergy mm-hmm.
1: and, and I graduated from A uh, Catholic uh, University And college And I went to uh, grammar school At a Catholic school And it's still true um, They give out these little papers And only the uh, Priests can carry and touch the Bible And I was just amazed to see them walk in with this ritual, carrying a Bible over their heads. And I'm thinking, they get to touch the Bible, and everyone in the pew has to look at a tiny sheet of paper. So, you know, it's still being practiced um, in some sense. So I want to get back to the Moors and this mercenary. From what I've read, I haven't read much, and that's why I'm asking you these questions. Mm-hmm. It seems as though Africans were some serious warriors, to the extent, yeah. and you know the Bible and named, it, and, and respect to the Bible, that they were like Joseph and to the point where he was known to kick big butt. So mm-hmm. it seems as though people from all over the world went to Africans if they were, if they had a problem, and we knew how to fight. So modern day slavery is where we knew how to create civilizations and develop nations, but they brought us over for our intellect. Um, but back then, I like guess in the dark ages, during the Maroons, it seems as though not the Maroons, I'm sorry, the Moors, that mm-hmm. we were known to to fight, create the best weapons. Am I accurate or am I off base? <laughs>
0: I, I think that's a part of the story. I, that's all inclusive, mm-hmm. and not only that, but more importantly, and that's the thing that I tend to focus on the most because I believe mm-hmm. uh, what uh, uh, Professor Henry Clark taught. You mm-hmm. know, during that time, he he taught that the two main universities at that time was the University of Timbuktu and the University of Al Andalus, which is um, uh, modern Andalusia. Within um, mm-hmm. Spain, right now, those were the high cultural universities before there were any types of um, universities um, um, after the Roman Empire had fell um, in Europe at the time, and they were under under the control of Moors mm-hmm. and Africans. You said this you is know. after
1: after before the, um, the
0: Roman Empire. This is after prior, the right? Roman Empire fell. Yeah, yeah, because when the Roman Empire fell, um, everything changed into nation states. And so, you know, that's when you started to uh, develop France and uh, Germany and uh, uh, Spain and, and all these mm-hmm. different smaller states when after Roman Empire had okay. fell.
1: So, now, you mentioned Henry Clark. Um, I'm looking for some books written by him about math. He wrote some educational books for children about right. math. And if you come across any of those books, any books about man that Henry Clark wrote, and this is for my listeners too, please let me know at leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, at Um, Now, are you collecting books? Do you have a library?
0: Oh, yes. I have a, both a digital library and a physical library.
1: Okay. Tell the audience why it is important to start collecting Books for your children, and what age, and
0: you know, what book did you start
1: with? I know in my home, my mom gave me Matt Turner and Charlotte's Web. What a combination! <laughs>
0: That's a nice combination. <laughs> a little bit of fantasy <laughs> told- and a little bit of struggle. <laughs> Both. Of them. That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I it's it, you know. Let me start by saying something. Uh hold on one minute. I just wanted to okay. May I quote Marcus Maziah Garvey for the, to to yes. um, illustrate what I want to say. He um, there's a, there's an interesting book by Marcus Garvey called that was done by Professor edited by Professor Tony Martin. He has passed, rest his soul. Okay. And it's called Marcus Garvey's Message to the People, The Course of African Philosophy. This is a book that mm-hmm. I think everybody who has well intentions concerning their family, concerning um, their their own personal development, and our collective national development, uh, they should have within their library, and they should read mm-hmm. and study and challenge their own thinking um, with. He said something really interesting in his lesson, like lesson one, uh, intelligence, mm-hmm. education, universal knowledge, and how to get it. That's the first lesson. Uh, he gives, And in the first paragraph, he says, you must never stop learning. The world's greatest men and women were people who educated themselves outside of the university with all the knowledge that the university gives. And you have the opportunity of doing the same thing the university student does, read and study. Read everything that you can read that is of standard language. Don't waste time reading trashy literature. And I think that is very, very important very important um, for people Mm -hmm. to digest because you can go ahead and read, but what you are reading is very important, right? Mm -hmm. You have to understand that reading is very, very important, fundamental. And by extension, also how you communicate with your children is also important. If you Mm -hmm. don't challenge your children from when they're small to command the language that we have to use because language is a mode of power within this country. If you don't teach them or challenge their thought, and they're ready for it, teach them Mm -hmm. to command the language from when they don't. don't look at them and say, oh, you know, they're too young. You know, little Tommy is too young to learn such and such at this age. No, you challenge them. And mm-hmm. allow them to make the decision from when they're young, to see them mm-hmm. grow and develop for themselves. And so, language is a very big part of this whole thing, and also reading mm-hmm. is a very, um, a very, very important part of the uh, our our conscious development. And what do you say about motives?
1: That they're motivated for the right reasons. Now, we have people. You know, one of my favorite quotes um, is from the lady who married me, Judge a Kid Stell, and she said education without a moral compass is the most dangerous state a person could be in. Oh yes. So if you're not motivated, if you if you're using this education for selfish ambition, for greed you could become a very intelligent but dangerous person. And Einstein also said something very similar.
0: Yes. Yes, -hmm. I I, I totally agree with that. I mean, this is why Mm -hmm. we have um, philosophical platforms like Pan-Africanism or the Negritude Movement, Mm -hmm. right? This is why Mm -hmm. Marcus Garvey taught things like African fundamentalism, right, so that Mm -hmm. you can have a philosophical platform from which to stand on so that when you're training your children and you're training yourself, you know what uh, place uh, you're you're, you're walking your journey from. You know where you're coming from. You know, Marcus Garvey Mm -hmm. used to always say, Africa for the Africans, home and abroad. So that gave people who are Garveyites a mission and a focus, right? Uh, Right. for, For me, it's wherever we are on this planet, Wherever Mm -hmm. African-descended people on this planet, we must take care of each other. And how do we Mm -hmm. take care of each other? We take care of each other first by looking after our own development. Because you're not useful if you don't take care of yourself. And you're not useful to your family if you don't take care of yourself. And your family can't be useful to themselves and others Mm -hmm. if they can't take care of themselves. So... Mm -hmm. We have to be on um, self sufficient and that's I think and, um, should be a part of our ideology
1: right and when you say self sufficient, the person that comes to mind this is the last question i I've kept you long enough, and I have to tell you I'll, i I enjoy talking to you off the record and um and I'm enjoying this conversation, so you have to come back but when we talk about self sufficient oh, yes. you. Um, you talked about Marcus Garvey, what is the connection between Marcus Garvey? and
0: Booker T. Washington. Oh wow. That's master and apprentice, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Marcus mm-hmm. Garvey Marcus Garvey looked at Booker T. Washington as a master. You know, uh the the, the one of I think one of the low points for the honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey is that when he came to the country, you know, he wasn't able to meet Booker T Washington in the flesh. Mm-hmm. and um, he was heavily influenced by Booker T. Washington because he Booker T. Washington was just a, a wellspring of, of of ideas on how to move um, black people in terms of um, education, economics, et cetera, and Martha mm-hmm. Garvey was highly influenced by that man. So I would say right. that uh, Booker T. Washington is like the Yoda and, um, you know, Marcus Garvey's like the the apprentice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well,
1: um, I I enjoy this conversation, and we know that the, the United Nations will be premiering the film um, Queen Manny on Monday, yeah. October nineteenth, twenty fifteen, and then, it'll, mm-hmm. then it will then uh, it will be shown again at the Schomburg, which you have one of those highly sought after tickets. Yes. I think they're sold out. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give you the last words. Do you have Uh, anything to say?
0: Yes. uh, First of all, thank you for having me on on your show, and I would love to come back and talk. It's always a pleasure to talk about our people, our Mm -hmm. ideas, and our collective empowerment. Uh, If anybody wants Mm -hmm. to reach me on Facebook, just look for a group called Maroon Culture. Put it inside your Facebook and look for Maroon Culture, and you'll be able to join the group, and uh, mm-hmm. you will connect with me and also see the various Maroon communities throughout the world. Twitter, and Instagram. You. And can you give uh, up your Twitter? Uh, uh, yes. On Instagram, I am Maroon Child. Look for Maroon Child mm-hmm. on Instagram, Maroon Culture on Facebook. No Twitter. All right.
1: Thank you so much. Okay. Have a good night.